Let's pray for a moment, Father, we just, as we now go to the Word, we ask you to anoint our ears and our hearts, our minds. Give us reception and understanding today. Quicken us according to your Word. Bless these thoughts and truths to our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, welcome to our harvest festival service. Um, And this aligns with the Jewish harvest festival uh, known as the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jewish harvest festival uh, of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in fact, when we study the feasts, we discover that several of the Jewish feasts are in fact harvest festival feasts. There are seven annual feasts. In fact, the Feast of First Fruits celebrates the barley harvest. The Feast of Pentecost celebrates the wheat harvest. And the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the agricultural year celebrates the fruit harvest, the olives, the grapes, etc., that come in at the end of the year. The Feast of Tabernacles is a seven-day feast. It's from the 15th to the 22nd of the Jewish month of Tishrei, which aligns with September, October on our calendar. And in fact, this year, the Feast of Tabernacles started on Friday, and we are right now in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. And there are a couple of purposes for the feast. First of all, It's a feast of thanksgiving for the harvest. I'll read to you in Leviticus 23. It says, On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there will be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day there will be a Sabbath rest. So it's a seven-day feast plus one Sabbath, eight days of celebrating and thanksgiving for God's harvest. It's called the Feast of Ingathering. Verse 40 says, You shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruits of the beautiful trees, branches of the palm trees, the willows, and other leafy trees, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. In time, what would happen, the Jewish people would take a lulav. I had a picture of it, but use your imagination. It's, it's different sheaves that are bound together, the frond of the date palm and the myrtle and the willow. It will be bound together in one sheaf, and in the other hand, they would hold a citrus fruit called the etrog. And they would hold them and they would wave them in every direction and up and down, indicating the sovereignty of God and his faithfulness as their provider. If you were in Jerusalem today in the, in the main square by the western wall, you would, it would be filled and people would be, have these sheaves and they would be waving them. It is a feast of thanksgiving and a feast of joy. The characteristic of this feast is rejoicing. It is celebration. In contrast to the last feast, you remember the Day of Atonement was the most solemn feast where there was repentance and confession of sin and brokenness before God because the people, so to speak, were being brought in before God to meet God through the high priest, to seek forgiveness for their sins 
and there was confession and repentance, and it was a solemn feast. But this is the complete contrast. This is a feast of rejoicing and joy and celebration. They will be singing songs and playing the instruments, and it will be a wonderful time. In Deuteronomy 16, it says, And you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter and your servants and the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you will keep a sacred feast to the Lord in the place which the Lord chooses. Why? Because the Lord your God will bless you in all of your produce and in the work of your hands so that you will surely rejoice. This is fitting in the life of a Christian as well, isn't it? Hello? That we should be people who are rejoicing and thankful and giving praise to him, for he has so greatly blessed us in and through the person of Christ. The next verse in Leviticus 23 says, Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month, celebrating with songs and rejoicing. That's the first purpose of the feast. It is a feast of ingathering with thankfulness and joy. The second purpose is that it's a feast of remembrance, as were many of the feasts. They were told, in verse 42, to live in temporary shelters or booths or tabernacles or tents, if you will. The Hebrew word sukkah is single for one tent, and um, sukkot is the plural. It is sukkot, the feast of tabernacles. And the Israelites were instructed during this week, for the whole week, to build these shelters, a walled structure with a leafy um, uh, woven roof made up of the leaves of these certain trees that they would see the stars through the roof. And in their back garden or in the courtyard or on the balcony, they would have this shelter and it would be like a camping exercise for the family and the children. And together they would remember that just as God led them through the wilderness and they were in tabernacles or booths or tents, and God had delivered them to the promised land. One thing you can be sure of of their wilderness journey is that it was intense. Sorry, it's a terrible joke. But they were intense all through the wilderness. And interestingly enough, God said to Moses, build a tabernacle, that's the word, that I may dwell with you. For God actually tabernacled with them, and they were in tents, and God was in a tent with them. And this was predictive of the fact that God would become a man and dwell with us. We read of this in John 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 it says, and the Word dwelt, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And the, the Greek word there is skenoo, and it's a verb meaning to tent, to tabernacle, to reside. That God the Son became a man and he dwelt with us. He tabernacled with us in human flesh. Amazing. So two purposes for the Feast of Tabernacles. 
First of all, the feast of ingathering with thanksgiving, God's faithfulness for the harvest. And secondly, it was a feast of remembrance, to remember that God in his faithfulness had delivered them from Egypt and brought them into the promised land. Now, there are, over time, certain rituals became incorporated with the feast. The first one to mention, and by the way, we're going to see how this feast relates to Jesus. So stay tuned for these moments as we lay this foundation and give this background. There is a great blessing awaiting. The first ritual was called the water libation ceremony. Libation meaning the pouring out of a, of a water offering. And what would happen is that every morning of the feast, for the full seven days, the priest from the temple mount would lead a procession of priests and people singing and playing instruments, and he would lead it all the way down from the, from the southern exit of the feast, all the way down the pilgrim pass, down the steps, all the way down to the pool of Siloam, which is the only natural water source for the city of Jerusalem. It is fed by the natural freshwater spring of Gihon. And because of that, they referred... Do we have this slideshow? Let me see. No, this is, this is an old one. Let's not, let's not go there. Because of that, um, where was I? Because of that, they referred to this as living water. And the priest would take a golden uh, vessel and he would plunge it into the pool of Siloam and there would be rejoicing and songs and psalms that would be sung. It is said in the Talmud, the Jewish writing, that if you've never witnessed the joy at the drawing of water, you have never seen joy all of your life, to make the point. And they would draw the water, and as they draw the, drew the water, they would quote Isaiah chapter 12, which in verse 3 says, you shall come and draw from the wells of salvation. And the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua which in the Greek transliteration is Jesus. You shall come and draw the, from the wells of Yeshua. And it was predictive, of course, of him. And then they would travel back up the pilgrim road, back up to the temple mount with the vessel of the living water, and they would be singing and praising. And they would be singing the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, all the way up. And by the way, 118 is the psalm that ends with the messianic verses saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is the psalm that says the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. It is the psalm that says, bring the sacrifice and bind it to the altar with cords. It is the psalm that beautifully speaks of the coming of the Messiah. And unknowingly, they will be singing that and it will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then as he gets to the altar, uh, every day where they would bring the vessel, the priest would circle the altar in the outer court one time, and then they would pour out the, the, uh, the drink offering. It would also be handed another vessel, a silver vessel that was filled with red wine. And together they will pour out the water and they will pour out the red wine. I cannot help but think that Jesus, when he was on his altar, when he was on the cross and he was pierced through his side, that water and blood, blood flowed forth, as was typified in this feast. 
then they would pray for two things. They would pray for the rains to come. For in Israel, that's very important for the crops, for the harvest. I remember on one of our trips to Israel, we were on the bus and it was raining. And we were disappointed by that. Oh, it's raining. And our guide says, oh, you may look at this and and be be sorrowful about that. But for us, this is the answer to prayer. We pray for rain on the lands and we look at it as a blessing from God. They prayed for rain, and secondly, they prayed that the Messiah would come. Now, on the seventh day of the feast, it was called Hoshana Rabbah. It means great salvation. And on this day, when they came up with the, water, the, the, uh, the living water to, as, a, as a drink offering, they would circle the altar seven times. It was a a culmination, if you will, a crescendo of the feast. And the water being poured out, of course, was central to the feast. It reminded them of God, of the rock being struck in the wilderness, which again is a picture of Christ, and the water flowing out to the people. He was struck once for us on the cross, and the water flowed. And it reminded them of the water that was provided for them in the wilderness and also focused their hearts and prayers that God would provide rain for them. Now, are you with me so far? See, I'm not going to use that joke anymore. Are you with me so far? Now we get to where Jesus commemorated this feast. Of course, as one of the Jews that would travel to Jerusalem three times a year on the pilgrimage for the feasts, he was there at this Feast of Tabernacles. And we read that in John chapter 7, that Jesus was at the feast. It says in verse 2 that the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Now, if we don't study what the Feast of Tabernacles is and we read that, it doesn't mean anything to us. But now we have some background on that feast. It was a week-long feast, and it was celebrated by all the pilgrims, and Jesus was at that feast. Verse 11 tells us that the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? Not because they wanted to meet him or greet him, but because they wanted to take him and to kill him. In verse 14, of course, they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. Verse 14 tells us, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and he taught. So now you have the context, right? In the middle of this week-long feast, a feast of great joy and celebration of the harvest, with the libation ceremony every morning coming up to the temple and pouring out the water and people praying to God. In the middle of this feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he taught. In the next chapter, it tells us he taught at the treasury, which is in the the woman's court. You would have the outer court of the temple, then you would have the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles, etc. And in the court of the women was the treasury, where people would pay alms to the temple. You remember the story of the widow's mite when they were watching people put money in the treasury? This is where it happened. This is often where Jesus taught in the temple. It was the most um, populated area where people would gather and often people would come to hear a rabbi teach or to hear the words of the wise. And this is where Jesus was teaching. It tells us in this chapter that the Jews marveled at his teaching. And they said, how does this man know this? How does he have so much wisdom that he has not been educated this way? 
And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but it is his who sent me. And some said, Could this be the Messiah? And he made these incredible messianic claims. You can read them in John chapter 7. He cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, for I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. And again, some said, Is this the Messiah? And there was division among the people. Now, on the last day of the feast, right, this is... um, the great day, the the seventh day of the feast, where they would circle the altar seven times, it tells us in John 7, 37, listen to this. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, now again, remember the context, the water libation, the prayers for rain in the temple, the people praying to God, looking to God. And Jesus cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. Now again, this is one of those verses, as beautiful as it is in isolation, which finds such rich context for us when we study the feast and we understand the context. This would have been profound for the ear of any Jew during that feast, and particularly on this, the great day, the seventh day of the feast. And he says, he who thirsts, come unto me. Now this is the gospel in the most beautiful and simple terms, isn't it? For man has an insatiable and unquenchable thirst of the soul, of the spirit, for we were made to know God. And there is nothing in this life that can quench that thirst, but only God himself. Jesus says, he who thirsts, he who recognizes that thirst, who will admit to that thirst, who would want that thirst to be quenched, come unto me and drink. Amazing. I love how it says, if anyone thirsts, there is no one excluded, but any man, woman, child, any teenager, any person, the greatest of sinners. This this invitation would echo out through human history, through all the world, that whoever thirsts may come. And look at the simplicity of that. Come unto me. Just come as you are acknowledging your thirst, acknowledging your need, and come to Jesus. And one might ask, well, how do I come? What do I have to do? And it is answered for us in the next verse, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Again, the context is profound as they brought up this living water from the pool of Siloam. He would say, come unto me. And he he who believes, as the scripture has said, as the promise is founded, there will be living water flowing out of you. Jesus equates drinking and coming to him with believing. What do I have to do? Believe. How do I come unto Jesus? Believe in him. How do I drink? Believe in him. How can my thirst be quenched? Believe in him, who he was and what he accomplished at the cross for you. Someone might ask the question, well, what does it mean, living water that will be flowing out of me? 
And John goes on in his gospel to explain. John adds this commentary. Remember, John wrote at the end of the first century. He's looking back to this. Since then has been Pentecost and the Holy Spirit has come. But John says this. This he spoke concerning the Spirit. So here's the question. What did he mean, living water, that you would drink and the thirst would be quenched and out of your innermost being would flow rivers of living water? What did he mean? And John explains it and says, this he spoke concerning the Spirit. He says, whom those believing in him would receive considering Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came, or when people are born again in in history. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, John says, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John, in retrospect, looking back, understood that Jesus had to go to the cross, he would be buried, resurrected, he would ascend, and the Holy Spirit would descend. And that was what Jesus was referring to, those who would believe that they would receive the Holy Spirit and they would experience what spiritual living water was. Many in the crowd, when they heard this, they were saying, truly, this is a prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. And some said, will Jesus come from Galilee? Has the scripture not said that Christ comes from Bethlehem of the seed of David? So there was division among the people because of him. The second important ritual that was incorporated in the Feast of Tabernacles was called the Illumination of the Temple. And I'm so sorry because we have some great slides that go with this. But use your imagination. Up on that Temple Mount, in the court of the women, there were four huge lamps. They were 75 feet high. And there was this wonderful procession and ceremony as, as young, young men would climb up and light the lamps. They would come into the temple with torches and the procession and singing. They would scale the lamps and they would light them. This was a nighttime ceremony and the lamps would burn all through the night until the next morning. It's said in the Talmud and in the tradition that you could see the glow of Jerusalem all the way from Galilee to make the point that the golden walls of Jerusalem would be glowing with the light, with, with the illumination of the temple. And again, this was a time of great joy, people dancing and singing. They were doing this to remember the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. Again, it's all reflective and remembering of God's faithfulness to them. Also, the lamp spoke of the coming Messiah, Isaiah mentions several times that when the Messiah comes, he will be the light to the Gentiles. I'll read you some verses. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Now, when you read the term Gentiles, you can often just put the the word world in there. The Jews were saying to the Gentiles, they were saying to the rest of the world, to the rest of the non-Jewish population of the world. In other words, the Messiah would be what? The light of the world. That was the promise, the light to the Gentiles. It's the same. Isaiah 42, 7. To open blind eyes. Can you say that? To open what? Blind eyes. 
to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. 49.6 of Isaiah, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And you remember when Simeon held the, the child Jesus and he lifted him and he prayed that incredible prayer, recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. He said he was to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people, Israel. So what are these verses saying? That when the Messiah comes, he will be the light of the world. Now, Let's go back to the Feast of Tabernacles. In John chapter 8, we have these chapter divisions, but they flow all together. This is all on the seventh day of, of the feast. And in chapter 8, it starts with the, day, with the words, on the next day, which tells us what? This is now on the eighth day of the feast. It's that additional Sabbath day. This was on the Sabbath. And it tells us that Jesus was teaching in the temple. And it was early in the morning. And what would happen? The lamps would burn all the way through the night, and then they would be extinguished in the morning, early in the morning. And that's when Jesus came, and that's when Jesus was teaching. And this is what he says in 8.12. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. And again, in isolation, that's an incredible verse, an incredible truth. But in the context to the Jewish ear, that was an incredible claim. They understood that that is a messianic claim to say that. There was no question about it. You can't say that. That's a messianic claim. But that's clearly what he said. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in, not walk in darkness, but they shall have the light of life. Now, as you look at chapter 8, he goes on with this discourse and this confrontation with the Pharisees. It's where he says, before Abraham was, I am. He makes a claim to his pre-existence and again his divinity by saying, I am. And it tells us that the last verse of chapter 8, it says this. They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They're the last words of chapter 8. But again, the chapter division is unfortunate there because the next verse of John 9.1 says, and as he passed by, so it's the same event. He, he passed by. And then John 9.1, as he passed by, this is the same day. This is on the eighth day, the Sabbath day at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. In verse 5, Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, verse 6, he spat on the ground and he made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And listen to what he says, verse 7. He said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Wow. Isn't it beautiful to study the Bible in context? It goes full circle. This was the pool of Siloam where the priests would come down and get the living water and take it up to the temple. This is the water that signified the Holy Spirit who would come to all those who would believe. And Jesus says to this blind man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he washed, he came again seeing. 
But Jesus was the light of the world. Jesus came to give sight to the blind and set the captives free, etc. And this is beautifully fulfilled on this Sabbath day. Jesus makes the promise and he fulfills his promise. Whoever will come unto me, I will give them life. I will give them living water. I will satisfy the thirst and quench the thirst that no other man or religion or philosophy or way can do. But only God can do that by his Holy Spirit in us. Now, the last point is this. When Jesus was there observing the Feast of Tabernacles, remember we've taught that the feasts are also prophetic. In fact, they're doubly prophetic because they were fulfilled in part in his first coming, and they are also fulfilled in part in his second coming. They are filled with prophecies waiting to be fulfilled by the coming of Jesus. We remember that the autumn feast will fulfill, the feast of trumpets will be fulfilled when the trumpet sounds at the resurrection of the saints. The day of atonement will be fulfilled when the remnant of Israel at the end of the seven years uh, turn to the Lord and recognize Jesus as the Messiah, ushering in his return. And the Feast of Tabernacles we, will be fulfilled at his kingdom come on earth and his will be done. Amen. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles typified. Again, that wilderness journey, but finally coming into the land. And finally, if you will, coming into the kingdom. Now, when Jesus observed the feast, he understood that. He understood what the Feast of Tabernacles typified, but he also understood that he was rejected as the Messiah. He wasn't now going to the, to the throne, but he was going to go to the cross, which, of course, was foreordained from eternity past. But he was knowing that the kingdom was delayed until his second coming. Now, at the second coming something profound is going to happen when the kingdom is inaugurated and it's found for us in Zechariah 14. And we'll finish this morning by me reading you the verses. Again, this is a prophecy that looks to the return of Christ and the setting up of the kingdom. It says the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Those who unify with the Antichrist and his forces to come against Christ, he will fight against them. And on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And on the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a great valley. Verse 9, and the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Not just king in Jerusalem, but king over the whole earth. And this is profound, this verse. Listen to this, verse 16. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord God Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Wow. All the way through the millennial reign, the feasts will be celebrated and have their place. But this time, rather than being uh, prophetic, they will be, they, we will look back. We will look back to how Christ fulfilled them at the cross, how he fulfilled them at his return, at the rapture, etc. But the feast will be acknowledged. Even the Feast of Tabernacles in the kingdom will be celebrated by both Jews and Gentiles. And again, the tabernacle typifies a time of joy, which is characteristic of the kingdom to come. It will be a time of great joy, great celebration, and great thankfulness. 
The Jews would remember Egypt and being delivered to the promised land. We remember our life before Christ and being brought to him and being given the promise of heaven. Until that day, we rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice, for God has truly blessed us with living water and eternal light through the Holy Spirit in us always. For by him, we do not thirst and we do not walk in darkness. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we pray this morning. We thank you for this time in the Word, considering your amazing promises, your amazing plan, your work of redemption for us and on our behalf. We thank you that we can be students of your word. We can learn and grow, that our hearts can be quickened afresh. We can be enriched with understanding through your word and by your spirit. Encourage our hearts. And in our hearts right now, we just choose to thank you, to praise you, to worship you for who you are. For you are, you are the great God. You are the God of a great salvation. Oh, what a wonderful Savior and a full salvation you have given us by your grace. And perhaps there is one here this morning. Uh, or one listening online, you are not sure of your salvation. You've perhaps not really heard the gospel before, but here it is. Jesus says, he who thirsts, anyone who thirsts, oh, come unto me, and, and he will have living water. Oh, come unto him this morning. And you do that by believing in your heart. You take a step of faith and you say, oh God, I believe in you today. I, I believe, I take a step of faith. Jesus, I believe in you today. I ask you to be my savior, my personal savior. Give me to drink. Like the woman at the well said, oh, give me to drink. And Jesus will do that. Jesus will do that. He will answer you. He will meet you. You will be given a new life in Christ by his grace. And for each one of us, use these thoughts to encourage us in our walk with you and to bring a blessing upon our lives personally, our families, and our church. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.